morning. It's good to be with you this morning. We had a good laugh when Charlie said, Gabby falls asleep when I preach. Sometimes she's asked to translate for me, and she knows my messages so well so that she gets ahead of me, and, and you know she'll tell the punchline before I'm done with the joke. <laughs> I'm originally from Minnesota. I was, I was raised there, but I haven't lived in the United States for the past 30, 33 years. I've been involved with torchbearers during that time, and, and southern Germany is our home. We live on a large lake so, called... Uh, Lake Constance or the Bodensee. That's where I went to Bible school in 1979-80. And uh, the Lord led me back there in 1984. Uh, Gabi is from Germany. She was born and raised there outside of the city of Stuttgart. And um, we got married in 2004. And uh, I married late. And Gabi was a widow at that time. So I became a husband and a father at the same time. Our daughter, uh, Katerina, is 26. She's been studying music. She's just recently got engaged to one of my staff members. I didn't realize that was going to happen when I hired him. But, you know, <laughs> Torchbearers has this funny reputation of being a place where things like that happen. <laughs> And our son, Christian, is studying at university uh, in Stuttgart. He's studying biochemical engineering. And it's a privilege to be with you this morning. As Charlie said, we arrived last evening. And um, so I'm a little bit tired, but I wouldn't have passed up on the opportunity to share with you this morning. And this is our first time at His Hill this week. Would you pray with me before I read God's word? Father, I want to thank you for... The fact that you have united us with your son. And Lord Jesus, we thank you for your presence this morning. And we look to you to be our teacher and to speak at a level which no human being can. And may we not just hear your word, but your voice this morning so that we might remain rightly related to you. We pray this with thanksgiving in your name. Amen. If you have a Bible this morning, I'm going to read from John chapter 15, the first five verses. Very familiar passage to some of you. Comes out of a section in the Gospel of John, commonly known as the Upper Room Discourse. And this passage in the Gospel of John and those chapters, uh, I entitled Godly Living in an Ungodly World. And in the middle of this discourse, Jesus Uh, gives one of his I am statements from the Gospel of John. Starting in verse 1 in chapter 15, Jesus said, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it, so that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me. And I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. When Jesus, speaking to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, spoke those words to him that are probably one of the most well-known verses out of the whole of Scripture. He said, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, 
that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. It doesn't say there that they may not perish, but go to heaven. It says that they might not perish, but have eternal life. You see, heaven is not the offer of the gospel. And before you throw me out of this church, I just want to make clear, all Christians go to heaven. But that's not the offer of the gospel in John chapter 3 and verse 16. The offer of the gospel is Jesus, and in particular, eternal life. For whatever reason, I thought, as a young Christian, that eternal life had something to do with the future. And because of that, I relegated eternal life to the future, and I ignored that eternal life in me in the present. You see, eternal life is not a place I enter once I die. Eternal life is a person who enters me before I do. That's eternal life. That's the gospel. God's word says in 1 John 5, 11, and the testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life. And this life is in his son. And he who has the light, son has the life, and he who does not have the son of God does not have the life. And Jesus gives us a picture of that in John chapter 15 when he talks about himself as the true vine. The offer of the gospel is eternal life. A person who enters me before I die. I did something very strange this morning, and I, I don't know if somebody saw me or not, but I went up and I, I touched the petals on this plant up here. And then I went over and had a look over here, and I wanted to know, <laughs> are they real? <laughs> because sitting over there, they looked real. But when you get a little bit closer to them, you realize they're a fake. They're a good fake, by the way. <laughs> They're not the real thing. You see, the origin of my Christian life is more important than the content of my Christian life. And again, I didn't just say that the content of my Christian life is unimportant. It's just that the origin is more important because when the origin is right, the content is automatically right. Man did this. Man did this. And what God does is the real thing. And it's interesting that Jesus, Jesus came and he said in John 15, I am the true vine. And of course, the Jews would have been familiar with that passage or that statement because in Isaiah chapter 5 and Psalm 80, God speaks about his people as being the vine. And Jesus comes and he uses that very statement. He says, I am the true vine and I've come to be the origin of everything that God accepts. In you. And in being the true vine, he also exposes that which is a fake. Because some of what purports to be Christian, you get a little bit closer to it and you realize it's not the real thing. The real thing is what Jesus does, and it's the only thing that God will accept. I am the true, true vine. 
And Jesus has come to enter into my life to be the source and origin of everything that I do say and am so that somebody getting close to a Christian realizes that's the real thing. And people are aching for that today. On our property at Bodensee, we live in southern Germany, and, and you see uh, semi-trucks all over the country, and it says on the side of it, Obst from Bodensee. Now, I, I appreciated Max Müller, who greeted me this morning in German, and I, we felt at home. And uh, that, that very simply says, fruit from the Bodensee. We're a very, very uh, prominent fruit-growing area in southern Germany. And on our property, we have uh, apple, pear, uh, plum and cherry trees. An apple tree is never tempted to produce pears. Never. You see, the life that has come to live in me is a life that will always reproduce his own character. It will always be consistent with himself. Again, it's not always, it takes time to realize this. I understand that. If you were to take me out into our orchard in February and say, Peter, tell me, show me the apple tree, I would have said, uh, I don't know. (laughs) If you would have taken me out in the springtime and taken me out into our orchard and and there were uh, red, dark red, pink and white blossoms and you said, Peter, show me the apple tree, I would have said, I don't know. If you take me out in August and say, Peter, show me the apple tree, I'll say, that one. How do you know? It has apples on it. You see, the fruit reveals the root. The fruit reveals the origin of the act. The fruit reveals the life from which it comes. And Jesus will always act and he will always, always reproduce something that is consistent with his character. But he's got to do it. And if you read the scriptures, you realize that often he speaks about the most intimate relationships that you and I will know. Marriage, family, and our place of employment. Because we will, we will live in those relationships the majority of our lives, and that is where our Christian life is tested, if it's real or not. So if you want to know how spiritual I am, don't judge that by how I preach this morning. It would be very easy. You just go to Ziegelstraße 10, and you ask my wife, my son, and my daughter. They'll tell you. They'll tell you if it's the real thing or not. And that's humbling, but it's good. And that is the very place that I need a miracle. It's the very place that I need a miracle. I'm the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. And somebody's seated here and they say, well, I can do a lot apart from Jesus. And do you know what? That's true. You can do a lot without Jesus. And what we do apart from Jesus in Hebrews chapter 9 verse 14 is called a dead work. It's work. It'll cost you a lot of effort, a lot of time, and sometimes even a lot of resources. 
But if it does not have its origin in Christ, it counts nothing before the Father, although we have expended a huge amount of energy trying to produce it. And scripture calls us in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 14, to repent from dead works. A friend of mine studied at one of the most well-known seminaries in this country. And having studied there for four years, he got to know a, a very dear African brother who became a dear friend who had been sponsored to go there and then go and serve his country in Africa. And my friend walked up to him at the end of their studies and said, you know, you've been here for four years now. What has impressed you most having attended our church? And this humble African brother looked at him and said, do you know what's impressed me the most? How much the church can do without Christ. And he did not stand above that church and he did not say that out of a spirit of judgment. It was just his very humble observation. One of the most challenging questions I've ever heard from the pulpit is this one. What if Jesus died today? I'm not talking about reversing time and going back 2,000 years and, and talking about what if Jesus never died on the cross then. What I'm talking about is what if Jesus died today and hence was no longer living in me? What would change? What would change in my life as a Christian? That's like asking this question, what would change if electricity was withdrawn from that light bulb up there. What would change? Well, everything. Everything. On the other hand, when electricity dwells in that bulb, what changes? Everything. Everything. You see, once Christianity is reduced to something that is wholly within the realm of my ability, it ceases to be biblical Christianity. If I can do it, it's not Christian because it didn't come from Christ. I went to Bible school in 1979 as a college, high school graduate, excuse me, like many of our students. And up until that time, I had a philosophy of the Christian life that went something like this. If Jesus died for me and did so much for me that he would come and take my place on the cross and redeem me to a holy God, the very least I could do for him and the very least that I owed him was a good Christian life. And and I began to, to kind of consider the grace of God as a loan instead of a gift. And in the sincerity of my heart, I wanted to live for Jesus. My problem was that I couldn't, and I was proving that. And the essence of my Christian life went something like this. You know, you've received Christ. We would encourage you to live for him. I went out and tried. I failed. Then I came and got forgiveness. After I was ashamed of that, 
came back, often went to a camp, and often at camp there was this message preached, well, if you haven't received Christ, come and receive him today. I knew that I had done that as a child of God who was born again by his spirit, but then there was a message tacked on to that, an evangelistic message, for the other Christians. And the message went something like this, well, if you're not living for Jesus... We would invite you today to come and rededicate your life to Christ. And so I came and rededicated my life to Christ. And put myself to living for him. Went back after I had rededicated my life to Christ. Tried to live for him. Failed. Was ashamed of this. Received forgiveness. And then I went to the next retreat. And it was said there's going to be a speaker and abandon other young people. And I would sign up. And sure enough, there would be an evangelistic message. If you haven't received Christ, come so and do today. Well, I'd done that. And I was assured of that. Well, if you backslidden, come and rededicate your life to Christ. And I re-rededicated my life to Christ. Went back, tried harder. Fell further. Felt more ashamed received more forgiveness, and went back to camp. <laughs> and they said, there's going to be a band and speaker and young people. If you want to come, go. And my parents would say, go. And they paid for me. And I'd go, and sure enough, there'd be an evangelistic message at the end of the week. And, you know, it's, it's amazing what we can confess around a campfire. It's much like Peter confessing a lot of things around a campfire in John chapter 18. And, and they'd said, well, you know, if you haven't received Christ, come to him. I knew I'd done that. Well, if you haven't, re- if you haven't been living for Jesus, you come and, and you rededicate your life to Christ. And, and, and I came and I re-re-rededicated my life to Christ. And they said, if you mean business, go home and throw all your secular music in the trash. And I w- went home and threw it all in the trash. Bad decision. Because now I see all those LPs in these record shops. I could have gotten a lot of money for that. And then I go to Bible school, 1979. I was sitting in the second to the last row, a good distance away from the guest speaker, because I felt that if they knew where I had been in my re-re-re-re-rededicating process, they, they really, you know, wouldn't have looked kindly upon my life as a Christian. The first speaker we had lectured from Hosea, I'd never heard of a Hosea before because I'd not gotten that far in my Bible reading plan because I got tired in Leviticus and gave up. (laughs) And he stood up and he said, I just want you to know that the Christian life is not difficult. Well, he got my attention. Because after I had re-re-re-re-re-dedicated my life to Christ, I was tired. And I just felt that other people had more commitment, more dedication than I did, but I didn't have it. Well, he didn't stop there, of course. He said, the Christian life is not difficult, it's impossible. And I was so confused at that statement. It's like I shut my Bible. And I said, I just flew 5,000 miles to listen to this guy that I can barely understand because of his accent. Tell me that the Christian life is not difficult. It's impossible. And my confusion at that statement was indicative of the spiritual deception that I had been suffering from from the first five years of my Christian life. I didn't understand what he meant. So it was about five more years of sweat until I came to the end of myself, and that can sometimes be very messy. 
I didn't understand and I'd never heard of the fact that apart from Christ, I can do nothing as a Christian. Nobody had ever told me that. I went to my concordance and looked for the word dedication in the New Testament. I found one reference. It's in John chapter 10 and verse 22 when it speaks of an obscure feast where the Jews would rededicate the temple to God. But it never speaks about dedicating yourself to live for Jesus out of your own strength and resources. It doesn't speak about dedication. It speaks about death. Die to yourself. We have three rooms at Bodensehof, and they have 10 people in them per room. <laughs> so if you come, you're, you know, some of our North Americans come into this room. Their bedroom at home is as big as this. And then we have our, our third world students. Their house is that big, and they share it with six other people. And sometimes they'll come to me and say, Peter, I'm in the 10 room. Whoa, that's a challenge. I'm in there with nine other people. And they'll say something like, but I'm working on my patience. And I smile inside and I say, well, go work on your patience. Because all you'll discover is what an angry person you are. <laughs> the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience. Not the fruit of the saint, the fruit of the Spirit. And the miracle that Peter Reed needs as a Christian is the miracle of patience. So that I can extend that to my wife, my kids, my staff. Christian maturity is being able to do less and less without Jesus while being able to do more and more through Jesus. That's Christian maturity. Discipleship is very simply the process of learning how to remain rightly related to Jesus no matter what happens. That's discipleship. And in John chapter 15 and verse 4, Jesus didn't give a suggestion. He gave a command. Abide in me and I in you. God has placed us in Christ. That is clearly stated in 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 1 and verse 30. God has placed us in Christ. Now we are to stay there. What does that mean? Well, yesterday we flew from Frankfurt to Houston. About 10, ten and a half hour flight. And if I'm sitting in row 97B, because we're flying in an Airbus 380, it's a double decker. And if I call the, the flight personnel over to my seat and I say, listen, is there anything that I could do to help us get, get there a little bit earlier? Because Levi's waiting at the airport and, and we'd love to get there a little bit earlier. Can I help? No, I'm, I'm sorry, Mr. Reed, you can't help. But if you'll just stay where you are, we'll get there on time. So relax. And I come in and I greet Levi and I say, well, we flew in from, from uh, Frankfurt today. We flew. <laughs> well, that's an arrogant statement. I did fly, yet not I. I just stayed where I was. Absolutely helpless, but in a disposition of heart that said, I can't, and I know that this plane can get me there on time. That's abiding in him. 
This verse says in John chapter 15 and verse 4, abide in me. We're called to abide in the, in the vine. We're not called to abide in the branches. Without doing any injustice to the importance of the body of Christ, I need to say this. One of the most common substitutes for Christ in the life of a Christian are other Christians. And we're looking to other Christians to give us what only Christ can give us. And again, I don't want to discredit or or undermine the importance of the body of Christ by any means. But the thing is that a Christian can't give you only what Christ can. I understand that Christ works through Christians and he manifests his life through them. I understand that, but we're not called to abide in the branch. We're called to abide in the vine. And because sometimes my attitude has been, I'm going to abide in other branches, I have been expecting things from Christians that they could never give, and my expectations of them were unfair from the start. And I go to other Christians to get from them in order to give to them. Go to Jesus to get. Go to other Christians to give. Nor did Jesus say in John chapter 15 and verse 4, he didn't say abide in the fruit. He said abide in the vine. You know, the human heart loves to be needed. And sometimes we have been looking to Christian service to give us that which only the master can give. We don't abide in the fruit. We abide in the vine. I was speaking about this at a church, and afterwards a parishioner came to me. It was in Austria at the time. And they said, Peter, why don't I see more fruit in my life as a Christian. And if we're honest, probably we've asked ourselves that question or thought that thought at some time in our life in Christ, if we're honest. Why don't I see more fruit? Well, the answer very simply is this, because we were looking for it. I said this, if I may, I said, Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. And there's the fruit out on that end. There is a temptation as a branch to want to see the fruit. We want to know if our Christian life works. We want to know if it functions. And the temptation is to look for the fruit on that end. The problem with that is this, the more you look, the less there will be. And the less there is, the more you look. And the more you look, the less there is. And pretty soon you have, you, you've sunk into a hole of self-analysis and, and introspection, which is one of the biggest thieves of joy I know in the Christian life. You're looking for fruit. Don't look for the fruit. Do you know when God uses your life through Christ, often you're going to be the last one to know it? And often you're going to be the one who's the most surprised that he did it. 
And as I look back on my life as a branch, the people that have influenced me the most in Christ were often the ones that were least aware of it. They were not trying to play the fourth person of the Trinity in my life, but I went away from their presence saying to myself, I want, I want Jesus. Those were often the people that did me the most good. Don't abide in the fruit. Abide in the vine. Now, to say that Jesus abides in me and he is the only one who can reproduce his quality of life through me is at the same time not to understand the Christian life as this. Well, Jesus does everything and I do nothing. I'm something like a passive blob and I have no more responsibility. That's also a misappropriation of this truth. It's not all of Jesus and none of me, nor is it all of me and none of Jesus. But it is all of me engaging with all of Jesus all the time. And that process is, is discipleship. And, and we will never graduate from that until we're with Jesus. One of our lecturers, a friend of mine named Gerard de Troyes, he's from South Africa. He said, this is, spiritual responsibility is this. Spiritual responsibility is my response to his ability. Spiritual responsibility is my response to his ability. Because of time this morning, let me just mention one verse that would talk about our responsibility. How do I abide in Christ? And Paul said it very well when he said in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 16, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you, where? In Christ Jesus. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and in everything give thanks. That's God's will. And that's how we abide in Christ. Rejoice always. I always thought that to rejoice always was to enjoy everything that I was going through as a Christian. (laughs) Well, I've been around the block a few times since I've received Christ, and I have not enjoyed everything that Jesus Christ has led me into and through. That's not what that verse is talking about. To rejoice simply means to take pleasure in. To take pleasure in the difficulty? No. To take pleasure in the fact that Jesus Christ said, I will never, no, never, no, never leave you or forsake you, and I am present in you in all that you're going through right now. I will never leave you or forsake you. I have him. So, My wife needed to learn this in a way that I never had to. Because when she said, I do, to her husband at the altar when they got married, she never knew that six years later he was going to pass away and leave her behind in a basement apartment in Stuttgart with two children, ages five and three. You don't think about that at the altar. And she did not always enjoy it. 
and she herself will tell you. She never got answers, but she got peace. And she learned to rejoice in the fact that Jesus was with her in that dark valley. And you know, in a very interesting way, God has a wonderful habit of taking those very things that may have left scars on our lives. And he allows Jesus to use them in such a way. And all you have to do, like my wife Gabby, is to go to another sufferer, put your arm around them. Don't preach a sermon. You put your arm around them and you say, I understand. Because suffering can be very lonely. When a person breaks their arm, they usually wear a cast. When a person has a broken heart, they don't necessarily wear a cast. And you can come into a church like this and sing songs like we just did, which is very appropriate and God-honoring, and be crying in your heart at the same time. And in a wonderful way, God has used that to minister to others. Don't ever underestimate the value of your scars because they are a testimony of what Jesus can overcome. Pray without ceasing. Pray without ceasing. It, it doesn't mean there have, a, have, have a, a prayer meeting 24 hours a day, although that has its value. And I understand that. But to pray without ceasing is something much more. To pray without ceasing is to relate everything you're going to back to, back to Jesus. And to continue in this, in this silent conversation with him throughout the day. I've only been married for 13 years, so I'm a beginner. And Gabby and I usually, we have our coffee and our quiet time. And we pray together at our home before we go over to the circus at 8. That's Bodensdorf. <laughs> Because when you walk through the doors, you never know what's going to be going on. If she called me at 10 in the morning and said, Shots, can I talk to you? And I say to her, listen, you know, we had our quiet time, but I'll be there tomorrow morning at 7. (laughs) Every wife knows, and every husband should understand. (laughs) You can't lead a marriage like that. Why do we relegate Jesus to the quiet time instead of engaging with him even silently throughout the day? I've realized I can sit in a staff meeting. I can drive in my car. I can write emails. I can stand before a group of people and preach to them and be speaking to Jesus about them at the same time. You're relating everything that you're going through that day back to the Lord. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and in everything give thanks. True faith is always reflected in the attitude of gratitude. Faith says thank you, it doesn't say please. And the main thing that I can thank him for as as a child of God and as a branch is that he lives in me, he will never leave me or forsake me. He is able to do abundantly beyond all that I ask or think in this situation. 
And I go about the day in an attitude of gratitude which says, thank you, Lord Jesus, that you're present in me right now. Again, I I learned a, a vocabulary that I misunderstood, and that's my fault. But when I heard at the end of the church service, Lord, go with us into this new week, amen, that communicated in my heart that he might not be going with me, so I need to ask him. I don't know how many worship services I have been to in which it has been prayed from up front, Lord, we invite you into our presence tonight, amen. That is biblical nonsense. I never have to ask the Lord Jesus to go with me into this new week. He does. Why, Peter? He lives in me. I don't have to invite the Lord Jesus into our presence when I worship him in the body of Christ. I never need to invite him. He's already there. So don't say please. Say thank you. And one of the most... The pivotal time in my Christian life came when I began to appropriate the presence of Christ who lived in me since the day I received him in August of 1974 when I began thanking him that he lived in me instead of asking him to go with me. I had been trained more to live with the absence, to reckon with the absence of Christ from my life rather than the presence of Christ in my life. And that didn't do me any good. And never, ever let the feelings of his absence deceive you. To the point that you stop thanking him for his presence. Don't let those feelings do that. Because he hasn't left you. And right at the time when we feel like he is a million miles away, do the radical thing, obey the word of God, abide in him by saying, thank you, Lord, that you live in me. You have not forsaken me. You will never leave me. And you are able. Thank you. Thank you. To close this morning, In 1 John chapter 3 and verse 23, Scripture says this is his commandment. Written by John who wrote the gospel in his first epistle in 1 John 3, 23, this is his commandment that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he commanded us. Then he says, the one who keeps his commandments abides in him and he in him. The one who keeps his commandments abides in him and he in him. So if we adopt the attitude of gratitude that says, thank you instead of please, thank you, Lord Jesus, that you've imparted your very resurrection life into me by a work of the Spirit. I want to thank you for that today. And then love one another as he commanded us to in John 13, 34, and 35. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples. When you love one another, then you'll be abiding in me. You see, to be abiding in Christ is something that is not passive. It's very active. It's intentional. It is responsible. And one of the things that I need to learn how to do 
is to love others. In fact, both in 1 John 3.23 and in John 13.34, Christ says, Christians, you love one another. I was in a very small town. You would lose it in the fold of a map of Canada. Small town called Wilkie, Saskatchewan. And I was staying with a wonderful Christian family whose daughter had been to Cape and Ray Hall, our Bible school in England, and she had just gone to Thailand as a missionary. She was a nurse in a leprosy clinic. And they said, oh, here's her first prayer letter. Would you like to read it? And I need to be honest with you. I didn't know her at all. But out of politeness, I read the letter. And I was so struck by what she said. I wrote to her in Thailand and said, may I quote what you just wrote in your first uh, newsletter? And I've never met her before. I look forward to that day. But this is what she wrote as a new Christian or a new missionary on the field. It was her first newsletter. And she said, another question which one or two of you have asked is, what has been the biggest adjustment since coming to Thailand? Next month, I will have been gone from home for a whole year already. The biggest adjustment surprised me. It wasn't the language or the culture or the heat or the lizards on the wall or finding a cockroach on my toothbrush or hearing the rats on the roof. The biggest adjustment has been learning to be with Christians all the time. My co-workers in the hospital at Meadow Lake were almost all non-believers. Non-Christians frequently display selfishness, pride, greed, and gossip. I never found it hard to forgive them for their quote-unquote sinful behavior. Nobody really expects them to act otherwise. But since changing careers and now having Christian co-workers, I've discovered that we also display selfishness, pride, greed, and gossip. Only we call our gossip prayer requests. (laughs) It's a whole lot harder to forgive my Christian brothers and sisters for their sinful behavior than my non-Christian friends. Sometimes what I need most is a new sense of the preciousness of his children. It's easy to look at the heathen with love, perhaps... Perhaps pity is the more accurate word, but it's hard to be non-judgmental and patient with Christians. When God sent his son to die for us, yes, he did it because he loved lost souls, but he also did it because he loved those of us who would become believers. God knew fully well how unholy his family would be. It's interesting that the command is to love Christians. And the reason why that is a challenge is this. Somebody names the name of Christ, automatically my expectations are higher of them. And if they fail at any point, my sense of betrayal and disappointment is even deeper. And that's why Jesus calls us to love one another. The number one reason why missionaries do not return to the field of service as missionaries is because they cannot get along with their co-workers. And when I get an opportunity at missions conference or otherwise, I like to lead a seminar entitled, Does God Really Love My Coworker? <laughs> yes, he does. And you are commanded to, too. Jesus said, by all this, men will know that you are my disciples when you love one another. 
And that is one of the biggest testimonies we have to give to a very cold, broken world. We have people come into our center and want to become a Christian because they see the body of Christ operating in love. Are we perfect? By no means. In fact, sometimes it's encouraging for them to know a Christian isn't perfect. But they see authentic love. And so in our neighborhood, we have a bunch of bed and breakfasts around. They love to have the guests from Bodensale. Because when they go into their homes, the presence of Jesus is there. They're intrigued by that and come to Bodensale for some of our conferences, our meetings, our concerts with the students. And they see that. And some of them have wanted to become Christians. What a wonderful, wonderful thing to love one another in the body of Christ and to abide in him when we do. Let's pray.